You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Um, all right. Uh, I don't know how thrilling the scripture reading was for you, but um, I hope that Proverbs 31 caught your attention. So let me say a word by, about just why I'm doing this. Um, every week, I, we scan the lectionary text and, and look what is offered. And um, when a prominent text like this surface, and when I say prominent text like this, I'm thinking Psalm 23, I'm thinking the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, uh, maybe, you know, like Daniel's and Lions, then Noah's Ark, these stories that seem to have a history of interpretation outside of the Bible themselves. Um, when I see these, I kind of gloss over them. And part of the reason I do that is because I feel over-familiar with them myself, but also because of these existing histories of interpretation, it's, it feels a little large trying to overcome. So there was Proverbs 31 this week, and I'm like, well, there's a landmine. And then I thought, you know, I preached on Song of Solomon a couple weeks ago. Why not roll the dice again and do Proverbs 31? Um, uh, now, I should step back and acknowledge this. I think as the church is evolving and the world keeps moving on, there are folks coming into the church who don't have these experiences with these texts. And so I want to make space for the fact that somebody heard Proverbs 31 for the first time and thought, oh, that's interesting, and we might even uh, benefit from, from hearing your initial thoughts on a text like that. Still, I wanted to try and fix, I think, an attitude towards this and a, an experience that people have with it. And to do that, I want to show you part of a, a clip from a TV show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, it is a show about, among other things, I think, women's liberation. Um, but Mrs. Maisel begins her journey, I think, with a certain script about what it means to be a woman. And I think that this clip offers a pretty biting critique of um, what that is and the kind of destructive inauthenticity that that can, can breed. So let's go ahead and watch this, and then we'll continue to talk about it. Festive, but deadly. <laughs> can I drink? Sure, did. Wow, I didn't hear it at all. You never do. <laughs> So what does this clip, clip represent? It represents, like I said, a script, granted a hyperbolic one, but nonetheless a cultural script about femininity and um, one that the church, I think, is not just by and large complicit in, but I think in some sense responsible for. And so what happens? Mother's Day rolls around, Women's History Month rolls around, there's a new book on premarital counseling, there's um, a new book on biblical womanhood, and what texts do people reach on to, to draw on? And they, they look for Proverbs 31. To be a good woman, the message is, is to abide by the job description found therein. Uh, one of my aims in preaching a sermon is to redeem our reading of Proverbs 31. I think if we're going to say this is the word of the Lord, we have to find a way to mean that, and I hope to get there. But before we can do that, we have to acknowledge, and here I'll quote Rachel Held Evans, that we focus on the Proverbs 31 woman's roles as a way of reducing womanhood to marriage, motherhood, and domesticity, when really this is a passage about character that trends both gender and circumstance. Um, I don't often think it is incredibly helpful for me to spend time doing historical, critical, exegetical work on a text. I think that work is important from helping preachers not make mistakes, but to derive things of homiletical value is not often the case. Here I'm going to break my rule and just offer you a few things about the text itself. Proverbs 31 is a poem found at the very end of this entire book. In that sense, I think it's a kind of crown jewel on the wisdom of Proverbs. Um, it is a 21-line poem that starts in verse 10 and describes a woman of noble character. 
Uh, Astute hearers, listeners, readers, who have read the entire book will notice that woman wisdom is a prominent theme throughout the book of Proverbs. So this has led most interpreters to do both from its placement within the book of itself and the reoccurring theme of wisdom throughout the book, that this is not a description of Jewish femininity femininity in the 8th century BC, nor should it be prescribed as such in the 21st century. Secondly, Proverbs 31, or the poem therein, contains an acrostic. Uh, This means in Hebrew that the beginning of each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession. Um, And the reason you would employ a tactic like this is to show show the comprehensive and exhaustive nature of describing something. So uh, taken as a whole then, This is a complete way of describing the upper-class life of a Jewish woman who keeps her household functioning day and night here, and I'll quote, by buying, trading, investing, planting, sewing, spindling, managing servants, extending charity, providing food for a family, and preparing for each season. And let's pause to ask this question, who can do all of that? Monica Geller? And is she healthy? Nope. So surely, again, this is hyperbole. This exhaustive look at Jewish life is intended to help us focus on the often ignored glory of everyday life. That's the point. Again, not a prescription for femininity. Uh, Here's some fun sociological data. Rachel Held Evans, who I've already mentioned and who I owe a great debt of gratitude, or great debt of gratitude for this portion of the sermon, um, talks about a conversation with her Jewish friend Ahava. And in this conversation, she makes a fascinating discovery. Uh, And that is this, it is much more typical for Jewish males to memorize Proverbs 31 than it is for women. And why, you might wonder, because Ahava explains, they sing it as a song of praise to women in their lives, their wives, their daughters, their sisters, their mothers, their friends. Ahava husband sings Proverbs 31 to her at every Sabbath meal. Third textual point I want to make about Proverbs 31 is this. Um, A common interpretation of the opening line of the proverb goes something like this, a virtuous woman who can find. Um, I think ours was the NRSV, and it was like a capable wife, which is probably a step worse. Um, the woman being described here in the Hebrew uh, is Ashet Shayel. Um, and we are familiar with that adjective because it shows up all throughout the Bible to describe males as Gibor Shayel, and it means valor. So the opening rhetorical question of the poem is this, where can I find a woman of valor? Valor has a much different connotation than virtuous. It's a little less uh, Lisa Simpson and a little bit more Zena, the princess warrior. Ahava, again, Rachel Held Evans' friend, explains that her friends often cheer one another on with this Hebrew refrain, Eshet Shael, which in Ahava's translation means something like, you go girl. And they use it to express encouragement indiscriminately for pregnancies, for promotions, for acts of justice and mercy and for battles with cancer, Ashet Shael, Ashet Shael, Valor, Valor, Valor. In October 2016, Angel Frioni woke up struggling to breathe. She braved her way to her door, opened it up, and saw that her house was being engulfed with flames. She sprinted to the bedroom of her two-year-old little girl, Rosalie, and her four-year-old son, Vinny, scooped them up in one in each arm, made her way out of the house, full well knowing that her eight-year-old was trapped in the back of the house. She went back in because what choice do you have? She got on the floor because at this point the smoke was smothering. She had to close her eyelids because, as she described, the heat was searing her eyes, and she crawled her way through blindly to get to the other side of the house, 
got her daughter, found her, found a way to lug her back. And this is a kind of trigger warning. Uh, the floor was so hot at this point that it peeled the skin off of her arms as she crawled back across. She got about eight feet from the door and she passed out. Luckily, there was a helper, a firefighter at this point, who found them and pulled them out. And they're, they're both alive. But I think about Angel Fiore and, um, and her children's lives, which she saved. In order to do so, she suffered third-degree burns on half of her body to do it. That's valor. And that's what mothers do. There was a story just last month of a, in, in Calabasas, California, a mother heard her two-year-old who was in the backyard screaming. She ran to the door, and a 67-pound mountain lion was dragging her toddler across the yard. She ran out, sprinted after it, tackled, and beat it till it ran away. That's what moms do. The child's fine, by the way. A pregnant mother of three in May was swimming in Lake Michigan when her three children were ripped out by a, um, a rip current, and she swam after them and saved all three of them. That's what women of valor do. I think of courageous women like Harriet Tubman, who every day woke up and put her life on the line to be a conductor in the Underground Railroad, again and again returning to the South, moving past wanted posters with her picture offering $40,000 for her head that are alive. Valor, valor, valor. And you know who else has valor? Every woman who has had the courage to move her or her and her children from an abusive relationship. Every woman who has stood up in a boardroom full of men and spoken her mind. Every woman who has drawn boundaries and advocated for her own needs. Every woman who stayed home and every mom who went to work in a world that tends to judge you for both choices. So what is our way forward with Proverbs 31? We could read it as describing wisdom and not as a job description. Some have suggested, in fact, it is a job description. This is sort of a New Testament extrapolation, but the woman in question is the bride of Christ. And I think the strength of this reading is that then this becomes prescriptive for everybody. It's both joy and task for all of us. Or a third option is we could leave it as is. There has been a great deal of ministry done in the spirit and the name of Proverbs 31. And we should consider that not all of it is bad. I have a friend who pastors in the Northeast. We talk about every other week on the phone. And he recently did a funeral for a woman who he described as a matriarch in the best possible sense of that word. Um, he also mentioned that this matriarch has a pretty vocationally accomplished daughter. She was one of the first women to attend divinity schools, um, an Ivy League divinity school, in fact, when that was a possibility. And though she didn't go on to have a career in vocational ministry, she became a really accomplished psychologist uh, so for the sake of the story, she is one who knows the stories of others intimately and how negative scripts can affect people in, in bad ways. So my friend was emailing back and forth with the matriarch's daughter about the, the liturgy for the funeral, and he was a bit surprised to see that the family had selected Proverbs 31. And this very accomplished psychologist with a divinity degree that would have exposed her to every kind of possible exegetical reading of this text simply commented when he asked her about it, well, we really think that my mom was a Proverbs 31 woman that her life reflected the ethos of this text, and we think this would be a great way to honor her about it. Uh, I think the scriptures are powerful like that. They can be read and read again. They can be interpreted, interpreted again. I think of Paul Ricoeur, who in his narrative theory talked about the second naivete that we can return to the text, and the spirit can open up our eyes to see things again. So again, I ask this, though. How can we move forward with reading Proverbs 31? In 2008, Taylor Swift released her second album, which was Fearless, 
which included the song, You Belong to Me. Do you remember this one? Okay, I don't know names very well, so I had to look it up. Uh, best I can tell after reading the lyrics, this is a melodic version of the 1987 rom-com, Some Kind of Wonderful, starring Eric Stoltz, Mary Stuart Masterson, and Leah Thompson. Has anybody ever seen this? Okay, all right, a lot of the old people. Surprise, surprise. Um, Masterson plays the best friend of Stoltz, um, as, and she helps him get ready for this date with Leah Thompson, all the while listening to her own, own heart break into pieces, because... She, the best friend, is actually in love with him. So, too, is the, the story of the song. In Taylor Swift's song, You Belong to Me, the best friend sings things like this. But she wears short skirts, I wear T-shirts. She wears high heels, I wear sneakers. She's a cheer captain, and I'm in the bleachers. Uh, when the song was released, it was received well, both because Taylor Swift is very good at what she does, but also, for all of those who felt like they were in the bleachers, there was a sense of solidarity. Finally, somebody is telling my part of the story. Um, feeling like, yes, I'm sitting in the bleachers. Why aren't enough? But then after the song was out for a while, a second voice emerged, I suppose one of criticism, and it asked this question, but what's wrong with the girl wearing short skirts and high heels? Isn't making her a villain symptomatic of the problem that we're dealing with in the first place? What if we lived in a world where both women were free to be exactly who they were and they were enough as is? If we could see that they both had valor. In Galatians 3, Paul makes one of the more tantalizing anthropological observations from human history. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Now, to appreciate the force of that, let me remind you that this is not spoken in a world with church egalitarianism or even complementarianism. This is spoken in a world where slaves and women and Gentiles, so now this is all of us, are ontologically categorically lower, deficient, comparative human beings. But for Paul, Jesus is the great equalizer. The girl in the short skirts and high heels and the girl in the t-shirts and sneakers are on the same team. What if the kingdom of God intends to make room for both the Proverbs 31 woman and Jezebel, for Mary and Delilah, both for the bride of Christ and the whore of Babylon? Wouldn't that be something if everybody was invited just the way they were? Um, this next sermon illustration, I think, could come across as a bit pretentious. I'm naming that in hopes that you let me get all the way through it to make my point that I can disavow that in the process. Um, there is a professor at Baylor, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who wrote a book last spring um, that was released called uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Um, and let me begin by offering some praise for Dr. Barr's book. I, I've not read it, but I followed her media tour and read reviews and noted that uh, the praise that's being heaped on it by some really impressive thinkers, and so I can only assume rightly so. Um, but when it first came out, I have to confess I was a bit surprised. And I thought to myself, um, haven't we done this? Hasn't Rachel Held Evans, hasn't Nadia Boltz, hasn't Sarah Bessie, hasn't Shauna Nyquist, hasn't Ann Voskett already done this? Said differently, I was surprised that we found ourselves in a moment in history where a book about egalitarianism was necessary. Don't get me wrong. I can nations that patriarchy runs rampant and probably even does silently in progressive churches because that's the discrete nature of the isms. But still, I assumed that we had had this fight, what, in the 70s? And then we had it again in the 90s and in different ways. And my conclusion is that I must have been privileged not only to have parents who made space for female leaders in my life, both inside and outside of the church, but 
really had just some tremendous female leaders in my life. And so perhaps my perception is both atypical but comparatively redemptive. Um, that being the case, I've decided I would like to share with you some of the wealth of my experience. So I wanted to conclude by telling you why I believe in women of valor and why I think the kingdom of God misses out when we don't actively seek to listen and to, to learn and be led by women. I believe in women of valor because at the beginning of our story, when God created Eve, God did not take out a piece of Adam's cranium to set Eve above him, nor did she take out a metatarsal to set uh, Eve below him. She took Adam's rib out from his side as the equal. I believe in women of valor like the prophetess Miriam because like Neville Longbottom after her, she didn't just find the courage to speak out against her enemies, but also against her friend and brother Moses, who was God's appointed. I believe in women of valor because when Israel was a tribal confederacy in the book of Judges and Joshua, and leadership was a giant question mark above them, God sought the help of sister warriors like Deborah and Jael, who looked more like Black Widow and Captain Marvel than June Cleaver and Phyllis Schlafly. I believe in women of valor because when God needed to save Israel from Haman, God did so by sneaking in one of the very best diplomats he had through a beauty pageant, subverting its meaning and giving Esther a chance for unparalleled fortitude. I believe in women of valor, because when King Josiah returned after exile and found a dusty copy of the Torah and needed an interpreter, he moved past all of his best male theologians and looked for the help from Huldah the prophet. I believe in women of valor, because when God needed a way to enter the world, he found it through Mary's courage. I believe in women of valor because when I think of the New Testament leadership of people like Syntyche and Yodia and Junia and Libya and Tabitha and Phoebe, I get excited. I believe in women of valor because when it was time to give the world the best news that it had had in history on Easter morning, God gave it to women first. And what shall we say? I don't have time to tell you about Mary or Martha or Rizpah or the Shalumite girl or Anna or Elizabeth or Rachel or Rebecca or Sarah. I believe in women of valor because Jonah Bark led Rosa Parks refused to stand up. Malala Yousafzai dared to get an education. And Marie Curie made it possible for me to get an x-ray on my shoulder when I broke my greater tuberosity. I believe in women of valor because Sojourner Truth got up at the Women's Rights Convention in Akron in 1851 and dared to ask, ain't I a woman? I believe in women of valor because I watched my mom hold our house together through near seasons of poverty, my father's military absences, and four pastors, children who all went through their own versions of rebellion. I believe in women of valor because my sister, a district teacher of the year, works 70 hours a week but gets paid for 30 of them, and she does it because she really loves children and believes education can change lives. I believe in women of valor because the best leadership I was ever offered was from my junior year hall director, Michelle Lewis. I believe in women of valor because Taylor is a hell of a pastor, and yes, she shepherds our children most of the time, but she has preached sermons and formed me in ways that I needed, and if the tables were turned, I'd gladly flourish under her pastoral leadership. I believe in women of valor because Carrie Fisher took over the chair of the leadership team in this church's hardest hour, and she did it with ease and grace. I believe in women of valor because when I get off the phone with our current leadership team chair, Kathy Cry, I feel safer because I know that between the two of us, there's at least one competent adult giving input into the future of the church, and it's usually not me. I believe in women of valor, because my wife really is the best person that I know. That you can be married to somebody for 17 years, or really any amount of time, and, and feel that way, must, yes, be the grace of God, but it must also be 
that she is every bit as tremendous as she seems to be. And there are a hundred other women that have made impact in my life that I don't have time to give sermon illustrations for, but deserve at least that. A woman of valor, whom can I find, Proverbs asks. My answer is I see wisdom walking all around all the time. And I think that the church needs to open up the church's heart and receive that wisdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for design, and we thank you for um, differing identities, um, complicated identities, and we celebrate all of that. Um, But God, we do name that um, we bring this intent to this passage, and um, we celebrate the wisdom here, we receive the wisdom, and we also confess that um, this has been misappropriated. And so we are reclaiming that and we are um, asking you to redeem that work in our lives. And um, God, for, for those of us who have um, ways we need to grow in, in our lives in this area, I pray that you would point that out. And um, I pray that we would be uh, cheerleaders and supportive of the women in our life and that we would, um, we, would, we would find the truth in this and that we would celebrate that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we like to um, take time to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit together in silence. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly, or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen together.